2018, so I'm pretty excited to be done with John chapter 8, but I'm also very excited about today and the fact that today has been, well, tomorrow technically will be two years I've been the lead pastor here at Church of the Valley. And many of us came here to Church of the Valley together, and we were a church plant called Compelled Together who then merged with COV, and now we are COV proper. And so we've been developing us as disciples of Jesus Christ, pointing people to the goodness and the the fact that Jesus did for us what we could not do for ourselves. And so today, as we finish John chapter 8, it's celebratory, but I also don't want us to miss what God has to say in this text. This chapter, chapter 8, has been very stretching for me as a teacher, as a communicator. It has made me wrestle with Scripture, how it was put together, and its authority. And today we will see this group of people who were Jewish in nationality but had missed true worship of the true God because they could not respond to Jesus calling them out in a Holy Spirit-led way, but instead they became defensive and argumentative. So as we jump into the conclusion of this altercation between Jesus and those who I would contend are legalistic religious posers, we will see their response to Jesus, telling them the truth and how they hear it. Jesus had just said to this group of people in verse 47, he said these words, whoever belongs to God, hears what God says. The reason you do not hear is that you do not belong to God. And I'm sure after hearing this, they were enraged, they were defensive, they wanted to find a way to shut down or shut up this rabbi who didn't seem to be trying to keep the peace with them, but telling them some very hard things, which I believe were for their benefit, honestly, and for ours today. So look at their response. Verse 48, here's what it says, the Jews answered him, aren't we right in saying that you are a Samaritan and demon possessed? (laughs) Wow. Wow. Aren't you a Samaritan? Aren't you not a full-blood Jew? Who's your daddy? Because you probably don't even know because Samaritans are promiscuous, is at least what people thought, and very unruly. And not only are you a Samaritan, but aren't you demon-possessed? At this point, there's this shadow that's cast over Jesus because even though these accusations of who and whose Jesus is are in no way reliable, that doesn't mean that doubt isn't being cast over him just because of the question. They've been challenged on if they know the God they claim they pledge allegiance to, and their response is to attempt to insult and discredit the messenger. So let's be real, don't we do this? Someone brings an accusation against us and then we wanna come up with the reasons why that isn't true, or we wanna start to dismantle the messenger. We wanna find the things that are wrong or inconsistent with the messenger. Don't we naturally want to disbelieve any accusations against us and become defensive rather than attempt to listen? And really, you know this, there's only one person in all of history who could not be found guilty of any sin, and here he is telling this crowd how it is, and they didn't want to listen or accept the possibility that what they had been doing probably for most of their lives had no spiritual value. It was in vain. So Paul talks about this. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he's speaking to the church in Corinth. It's known as the resurrection chapter, but he starts it with this. He says in 1 Corinthians 15, 1, now brothers and sisters, now Christians, now fellow family members in the, in the world, in the family of God, I want to remind you of the gospel that I preached to you. 
in which you've received, in which you've taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word that I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. Does anyone really want to ever admit that what they believed in, what they trusted in, was actually in vain and of no worth? Maybe it's spiritual pride that stops us. Maybe we think, I've been in the church of God for decades. I've been faithful to attend. I've been faithful to give of my time, my treasure, and my talents. How can you say that's in vain? Well, it's not, unless that's what you point, as you, point to as your justification, or as anything else, honestly, for that matter, that isn't Jesus Christ and him crucified and resurrected. I get that for most of us, it's hard for us to examine ourselves, but this is a prideful mistake that I don't think any of us should make. You can find things wrong with me all day. If you know me, you know this about me. So feel free to discount the messenger in this case, but know that examining ourselves and being honest with our need for more of Christ and less of us is something that we ought to do daily. I know it's really easy to take offense to people who do not believe what you believe about Jesus. Did you know there are people around you that don't believe in Jesus like you? It's crazy. But I need us as a community to understand that we don't write off those people who do not see God the way that we see God. We're quick to assume that if someone is against the idea of God, if they're persecuting us, we're quick to assume that they are in opposition with the mission of God, but here's the thing, they are the mission of God. I want you to think about the people that maybe you've seen today, maybe you've seen this week, that dress in such a way that kind of show that they don't necessarily worship Jesus. Let me, let me put it this way. They wear religious garb, if you will. They possibly make known their allegiance to Buddha or to Allah. How do you see them? Do you see them as opposition to the mission of God, or do you see them as the mission of God? Do you see them as an enemy, or do you see them as someone who is in need of the truth of the gospel? We spend so much time here at COV talking about what the text actually says, especially in this altercation where we've been pointing out some just do not have the ears to hear or the eyes to see Jesus for who he really is. And some, let's be real, just never will, but we don't get to know if they'll ever have the ears. Our job is to be faithful. It's true that the results are not up to us. We talk about this a lot. The whole idea of evangelism, discipleship, sharing our faith, being a witness for Jesus, the results are not up to us, but our obedience to God's commands should be a reflection of our love for him. So we get to serve him. We get to be obedient to him. So this crowd asks him if he's a Samaritan, if he's demon-possessed, and then Jesus retorts against the question of being a Samaritan and demon-possessed. Here's what he says. I am not possessed by a demon, said Jesus, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Wow. Many theologians spend so much time making the point that Jesus addressed the demon possession but did not address the Samaritan accusation. And I'm like reading different commentaries and they're all spending all this time in that and I think they've started the major and the minors. Because here's what I know. If you call me a different nationality, let me give you an example. My last name is spelled R-E-I-L-L-Y. I am Irish, all right? My family came over on a boat in 1901 and we were the O'Reillys, all right? Don't call me that, auto parts. That's not who we were. <laughs> but they dropped the O when they got to America and 
it's R-E-I-L-L-Y. Most people, in your phones, if you have my number, you might spell my last name, R-I-L-E-Y. That's British. I'm not British. I'm Irish. I'm proud of my Irish, but I have nothing against British people. Okay? And so if you think about it, if this, I'm just basically correcting all of you. That's what I'm doing right now. But basically, if, if someone says, well, you're this nationality, and I get really defensive and start to argue against that, what does that say about me with that nationality? I may be racist against it. I'm a bigot. I'm something to that extent. And here's what I know. Jesus, even though he was a Jew, he was for the Samaritans. He was for the Gentiles, and he was for the Jews. Jesus, even though a Jew, was for these people because he draws all walks of life to himself. Did you guys know that? See, heaven's not going to look super white, super brown. It's going to be all colors. It's going to be all tongues. It's going to be all tribes. And this morning, uh, two years since a bunch of us got here to Church of the Valley and the church plant and COV merged, we met as a leadership team, the worship team and the tech team and children's ministry, and we got together and I spent some time reminding people, hey, we've been here for two years and God's done some cool things. And then I asked them, hey, what have you guys seen God do in these two years? And we read from Revelation and we spent time looking at what's to come and the fact that Jesus wins. I read ahead, guys. And it's pretty exciting. But here's what it says in Revelation 7, chapter 7, verse 9. It says, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. John, the apostle whom Jesus loves, the disciple whom Jesus loved, John writes in Revelation about what it would look like at the end of days and in heaven, and there will be people from every tribe, every tongue, and every color, but don't get it twisted, it's about Jesus, who God has drawn to himself through grace and the message of the gospel. Verse 49 of John 8, Jesus says, I'm not possessed by a demon, said Jesus, but I honor my Father and you dishonor me. So Jesus calls us to make disciples of all nations, of all colors, of all creeds. So to be called a Samaritan as an insult to Jesus is something he doesn't even address. He doesn't even pay mind to it. And then Jesus says, I honor my Father and you dishonor me. Jesus, over the next few chapters in John, which we'll get to after the summer, describes often the relationship between the Son and the Father. In John chapter 10, verse 30, it says, I and the Father are one. In John chapter 1, verse 1, and then we have the decoder ring in verse 14, it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 14, the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. So hear me, the Father and the Son, they are one, not the same person, but the same thing. God in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one God who is in perfect relationship within himself. God the Son, God the Father, they're the same essence. They don't do things in contrast to one another. That is why we often say, if you want to know what God's like, look at Jesus. That doesn't offend the Father. This is why he makes this statement that says, I honor the Father and you dishonor me, as if to say, 
you don't get that me and the Father are one, so for you to dishonor me while I honor him means you dishonor him. Verse 50, Jesus says, I'm not seeking glory for myself, but there is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. So let's, Jesus lets known that he is not doing what he is doing for his own will, but the will of the Father who sent him. He wants those who see he wants people to see that those who claim that they know God the Father need to know God the Son, that they need to see the glory that comes from Jesus, that, that Jesus being the one from the Father gives glory to his Father, and that they're in perfect relationship with one another. Because of Jesus, you no longer have to die in your sin, but you have to believe in the one who did die for your sin. It's so simple, it's so easy, but people miss it. Jesus died for your sin, and so you don't have to do anything to be saved, but if you really believe that, that means you're saved. Because of what he has accomplished, you understand that because he died, you can live. So because of the great exchange, God got what we deserved, Jesus hanging on a cross, and we get what he deserves, which is to be at the right hand of the Father, to be looked at as Jesus is looked at because of Jesus' perfect record, because of the great exchange, we glorify God in heaven because we have access to him through Jesus Christ. First Timothy chapter 2, verses 5 through 6, Paul says it this way, For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind. It's the man, Christ Jesus. He's the man. You can write that down. That's a good note. Who gave himself as a ransom for all people. This has now been witnessed church, to at the proper time. And then the writer of Hebrews says it this way, Hebrews chapter 9, 14 through 15, how much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit, capital S, offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciousness from the acts that lead to death, so that we may serve the living God. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of the new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised internal inheritance now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. See, Jesus didn't come to make you happy. Jesus came to make you holy. Jesus didn't come to make you happy, healthy, and wealthy. He came to make you holy, to make you set apart, to make it so you could come in contact with God because of God coming in contact with us through the Son, Jesus Christ, because he became the ransom for our sin that led to death. So verse 51, he says, very truly, I tell you, whoever obeys my word will never see death. So, okay, just letting you guys know. You ready? I'm going to start preaching. Okay, we ready? All right, that was all just context. Now we're going to start preaching. Here we go. Very truly, I tell you. King James puts it, very, verily, verily, I say unto you, listen up. What I'm about to say is a promise from God, you disbelieving and obstinate people. That's my paraphrase. All right, that's what I think he's saying. Whoever obeys my word, whoever keeps my word, whoever abides in me will not see death. This is a promise. This is a promise from God. First, as we're going to look at this, I need you to understand what we don't get to see, what we get to miss, then we get to look at what we get, and then we'll see how it happens. So here we go. You, Christian, because of what Jesus Christ has done, not because your parents gave you that name or because you grew up in the church, Christian, you will not see death. 
Jesus uses this word see. It's a Greek word that means to fix on, to experience, to gaze at. It's not the word that's used for glance at. It's not saying you won't glance at death as it goes by. It's saying you won't be caught in death as an experience. Let's just be real. A lot of us are fearful of death. Some of us think we're going to die many, many years from now because we're young, and young people always think you're immortal. You're not. And some of you are like, yeah, I'm going to die soon. I just, just know that about myself. And no matter where you are, there's the fact that there's something scary about the unknown. There's something scary about the fact that death seems so out of place. It seems so unnatural. And so there's a story that's told by a pastor this pastor was talking with a woman who was on her deathbed. She had gone through a few different surgeries to attempt to eradicate the disease that was ailing her. And as the pastor talked with her, she admitted to him that she was afraid, which the pastor said he understood. He said that's a natural response to death. He then went on to remind her of her hope in Jesus and describe the feeling that one has when they're being put under because of anesthesia. If any of you have ever had a surgery and you've had to be put under, they take this anesthesia and it makes you tired and it makes you feel this great peace around you. And then what happens is you tend to fall asleep and then many hours later, you feel like a new person and you don't feel like any time has gone by. In a much bigger way, that is what death is like for the child of God. It's like we cease to be in this world and then we end up in the world to come because we have Jesus Christ as our Lord. And because of our security and our identity that can only be found in Christ, we do not experience what some people call the second death, which is this judgment and eternity without the God of the universe because we want him. This is what it means to not see death. As Jesus says, but then he says, there's the how. How do we not see this death? As we speak of all the time, we implore you at Church of the Valley to repent, okay? I'm not going to go on the street corner. I don't have a sign. I'm telling you this. You came to me, all right? I'm just putting that out there. Repent in faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone as your Redeemer, your Sustainer, your Savior, and your Lord. But for the person who hears these words, they and we often sometimes can treat repentance like a work. See, we're not saved by works, we're saved by grace. And we will treat repentance as a work, as if it's something we have to do to be saved, rather than the supernatural response that someone who is saved has because the person and work of Jesus Christ has come to them. So that is the what. Now let's talk about the how. You ready? Here's what Jesus says. Whoever obeys my word, all right, just want you guys to notice this, this isn't just a theme at Church of the Valley. This is a theme in the Bible. Whoever obeys my word, God constantly points us to what a redeemed person does. They obey, they abide, they apply and do the work of God. But culture and religion, ironically, have skewed this. They've either taught us that obedience isn't necessary, that's culture, where obeying is weakness, or religion, 
where we are taught we must obey in order to have salvation. But hear me, it's because we have salvation that we can obey. It's because of what Christ Jesus has done that any of us even want to obey. So when Jesus says, those who obey my word will never see death, he's stating a fact. (laughs) Because those who obey his word do not see death because those who are redeemed by him can obey his word. Don't get it twisted. See, obedience is not the root, it's the fruit of your salvation. So why is this so important? Because culture has taught us that we shouldn't obey. Religion has taught us we must obey. And check this, our misinterpretation of the very scriptures we believe in has taught us that it's okay not to obey because we are saved by grace. Do you see why we have to talk about this? Because culture, religion, and even the way some of us read scripture is off. See, we're saved by grace, but grace creates a response when received. To think we do not have to obey because we will just be forgiven is what some theologians call cheap grace. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the great theologian, the great missionary, he did a lot of great works. He says it this way, cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Christ Jesus. There are going to be people in heaven that we're surprised are there. Can I just be real about that? There will be people that didn't really look like they knew it or understand it, but because of God's infinite grace, some will come into contact with them, not because they did anything right, but because they understood what God did for them. But the point of Bonhoeffer's quote is the de-emphasis of what is actually important in our salvation because it produces a response in us. You can know this book inside and out. You can be the best Bible scholar. You can tell me context. You can know original language. You can do all of that stuff and miss Jesus Christ. Did you know that? As I've shared before, Uh, about my father. My father was what I would call an antagonistic agnostic. Here's what an antagonistic agnostic is like. They want to argue until you bring up a really good point, and then they go, I don't care. So annoying. All right, just putting that out there. And my dad died with what I believe was without Jesus. I was 30 years old when he died. I had pointed my father to Christ. I had shared the proof of the resurrection with him, He saw firsthand what Jesus had done to and for me, but he told me he didn't want to believe. He didn't want to believe that his life was in vain. He didn't want to believe that that his life spiritually was of no worth and that his life where he sought out information and the world's knowledge rather than the Lord Jesus Christ was totally in vain. So my father died and My father, or after my father died, my wife and I and my half-sister all went to his apartment in Phoenix to clean it out. There were a lot of trinkets and things that I would say were of no worth. He had, let me give you context, he had every Mad Magazine ever. Okay, like four of us get that. He had movies. He had DVDs. Remember those? He had video cassettes. 
He probably had beta somewhere, but we didn't find them. But what my wife found and what she wouldn't let me leave were these. This is a Bible in Greek, or I'm sorry, in Hebrew, from 1946 with my dad's name on it. This is a Bible from 1958 with my dad's name on it, and it's in German. This messed up, tore up Bible uh, looks to be in Spanish, and it's from 1952, and it has my dad's name on it. This Bible looks to be from 1953. It has my dad's name on it, and it's in Portuguese. You might not know this, but my dad spoke 12 languages fluently. Fluently. Just knew him. He's so annoying, right? Like you argue with him, he starts speaking a different language. You're like, stop speaking in tongues, relax. <laughs> he spoke all of these different languages fluently. And one of the reasons he had all of these Bibles is the Bible is the easiest book to acquire that can help you read in different languages. So my dad had the, these collections of Bibles. I believe they're God's inerrant word as they were originally written down so we could know God personally and experientially. But for my father, these books were just a bunch of stories in different languages so that he could understand, comprehend, and speak those different languages better. What a waste. To have my father's mind with these Bibles in different languages but to not see Jesus for who he really is and to use these scriptures as essentially textbooks was what I would consider the biggest swing and miss in all of history. He had a lot of copies of the Bible but wanted to use them for his own purposes. Here's what I did appreciate about my father, though. He at least was really honest. He was really honest about his unwillingness to bow down to God, to believe in God, to entrust himself to God, to obey God's teachings, and he knew that, and he admitted that, and had more opportunity and more time with the Holy Scriptures than probably any of us will ever have. So I know having the Bible, I know reading the Bible, I know claiming you understand the Bible means nothing unless Jesus Christ is your king and you do what he says. Because when he's your Lord, you live for what he says, not for what you want anymore. But the gift of this Bible is not just that for each of you, the Bible's in the language that you understand, but the gift is that because of the Bible, because the Holy Spirit resides in you, because you've repented from your sin, you can know God better because of the word of God, and you can put into practice his word, and spoiler alert, you grow in the fruit of the Spirit, and guess who's perfect in the fruit of the Spirit? Jesus. So that means we get to look more like him. Verse 52, at this... They exclaimed, they were getting angry. Now we know that you are demon-possessed. Abraham died, and so did the prophets, yet you say that whoever obeys your word will never taste death. Their reaction to Jesus' promise is to once again accuse him of being possessed by a demon and a complete disregard and misunderstanding of what he is really saying because they are once again thinking of the physical rather than the spiritual, because they know that Abraham and all the prophets had physically died, 
But see, Jesus is speaking of eternity, of the spiritual realm, which they could not see and they could not understand because they did not have the Spirit of God inside of them. So now we see some aggression. We see agitation towards Jesus. And then they say this in verse 53, are you greater than our father Abraham? He died and so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? The way they say this, they're expecting him to deny what they're saying. Do you think you're greater than our father Abraham? Don't you, you don't think that, do you? Who do you think you are, Jesus? Yet Jesus is far greater than Abraham. And we'll see that in his response, verse 54. Jesus replied, if I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My father whom you claim as your God is the one who glorifies me. They still don't realize that by fighting against Jesus, they're exposing their lack of relationship and love for the father. So Jesus says, I don't need to glorify myself because if I did, you wouldn't understand it anyway. But my father does. The same father you claim as your God glorifies me. Verse 55, ooh, these are fighting words. Though you do not know him, Jesus says, I know him. If I said I did not, I would be a liar like you. Wow. But I do know him, and I obey his word. If I said, Jesus is implying, that I didn't know him like you are attempting to accuse me of, I'd be a liar like you. Dang, Jesus. I mean, I get up and tell you, you guys don't just lie, you're liars. But dang, Jesus. But don't miss what else he says, because I'm pretty sure they missed it, right? Like, they missed this text, if you will. I do know him, and the evidence is what? That I obey his word. So for the legalist, this sounds like our justification, doesn't it? I want to be like Jesus, so I obey his word, and then I can act self-righteous because I obey his word. Listen, you and I do not obey God's word without the Holy Spirit doing the heavy lifting. It's not because of us, it's because of him. And if you read this verse and think, I too know God, because I obey, you miss the emphasis of this entire letter, you miss the emphasis of the entire New Testament, you miss the entire emphasis of the entire Bible. See, I know God because I know Jesus, and he is my justification. So I want you in this moment, this is going to be difficult for some of us, I want us in this moment to imagine a courtroom where the prosecutor has brought up all of your flaws because you're on trial. There's a judge, there's a prosecutor, there's a bunch of people that are your peers in the courtroom, and they have figured out somehow to get all the things you've done wrong. The, we don't have this technology yet, but I'm sure Apple's working on it, right? And they're trying to figure out a way to tell you all the things that you've done wrong, all of your transgressions, all of your flaws, all of your sins, all of your urges and motives, and why you've done what you've done. And after the onslaught of accusation, as these things are put on screens and they're showing and telling others about how evil and terrible that you are, after they've found proof, after, after they've torn your character to shreds, and none of this is a lie, by the way. At the end, they ask you, what do you plead? See, we know we are guilty. 
We know that we are not good in the world's eyes. We are not good enough. We can never make up for the bad that we've done by the good that we can do. We can help people across the street. We can feed the homeless. We can do a bunch of stuff. It will never make up for the transgressions we've done against God. So after all of this happens, we're then asked, how do we plead? So what do we plead? Are we going to attempt to justify ourselves through what we've done? Or will we do what every person who is guilty in the world's eyes but is found innocent in God's eyes pleads? I have one answer and only one answer that satisfies and justifies. It's I plead Jesus. That's all any of us can plead. That's all I got. That's all you got. There is nothing better. There is nothing more sufficient. There is nothing but Jesus. That is why we make it about him. That is why, this is kind of cute and adorable, you know what people call this church? They call it a Jesus church. (laughs) Ha, cool, I'm down, sweet. And not that all churches that preach Christ crucified and resurrected shouldn't be Jesus churches, but that is who we emphasize because it's all about him. If Jesus isn't the point, you're doing it wrong. I love you enough to tell you that. So all of your religion, if Jesus isn't the point, you're doing it wrong. If, if you're writing a sermon and Jesus isn't the point, you're doing it wrong. If you're sharing your faith and Jesus isn't the point, you're doing it wrong. If you're doing youth ministry or children's ministry or marriage counseling or anything in this life that you want to call Christian and Jesus isn't the point, you're doing it wrong. So Jesus points out their father, Abraham's faith. And whose it was in, because he knew that they weren't children of Abraham. In verse 56, it says, Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. Jesus knew that Abraham believed God and the future promise of a Messiah, which seems to be the theme throughout Scripture. In Genesis 15, 6, it says Abram, which was Abraham's name before God changed it. Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. In Romans chapter 4, verse 9, is this blessedness only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We have been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. In Romans chapter 4, 18 through 25, it says against all hope. Abraham, in hope, believed and so became the father of many nations, just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead, about 95. Yet he did not waver through unbelief. Oh, that's a good word. Regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he had promised. Pause. Do you believe that God has the power to do what he's promised? This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words it was credited to him were not written for him alone. Hallelujah. But also for us. To whom God will credit righteousness for us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Hallelujah. 
And then in Galatians chapter 3, verses 6 through 7, so also Abraham believed God, and it was accredited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham, not people that try to keep the law and suck at it, but those who have faith in, Ab- in God, the same faith that Abraham had, they are Abraham's children. James, the half-brother of Jesus, in James chapter 2, verse 23, and the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friend. It was not Abraham's moral record. It was not Abraham's history that made him righteous. It was the belief that God would do what he promised. That's what justified him. And we get to be led in on the same promise because we know that Jesus rose from the dead. We don't have to be in the dark of God's plan or his future promise. So the crowd of Jews who can only think and see in the literal and physical respond with, verse 57, you are not yet 50 years old, they said to him, And you have seen Abraham? This is sarcastic. They're trying to say that Jesus isn't old enough to have seen Abraham. So how could Abraham be glad about seeing the day of Jesus? And Jesus, once again, he's not speaking in the physical. Because that wouldn't make any sense. But throughout the Gospel of John, throughout the Word of God, we see this disconnect of people who don't have the ears to hear, and they expose themselves because they only default to the physical and not the spiritual, and they expose themselves as people that do not have the Holy Spirit. So Jesus' response, it's so clear, it's so direct, it's so powerful, but for the casual reader or the person who misunderstands Scripture for the physical rather than the spiritual, you'll miss it. Here's what he said, verse 58. Very truly I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. I don't know if we see the big deal of what Jesus just said. See, Jesus just outed himself. He has just made known in front of a large group of people that he doesn't just think he's from God, he thinks he is God. How do we know this? Because of what we studied a few weeks ago in Exodus chapter 3. In Exodus chapter 3, 13 through 14, we have the same expression. God says, I am. The I am is what God told Moses when he asked him for a calling card and an explanation of who he should say sent him when he goes back to the Israelites, and what does he say? I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. There's tension in this moment. It's real. And all of this chapter, all of God's work up until this point has led up to this moment where Jesus makes this proclamation, I am not just a prophet, I am not just a teacher, I am God. I know for the non-believer, I know for the misunderstander, I know for the non-obeyer, people even argue that Jesus never said that he was God, but listen, there is no more clear place For the person who handles the Bible as one story, who has the Spirit of God residing in them, that knows for a fact that this is a confession of Jesus of his divinity. And this moment starts to put into motion 
the plan that Jesus would go to pay on the cross for our sin and for mankind's sin, what we had produced, Jesus got to pay for. Verse 59, at this, they picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. The mob of people heard what they thought was blasphemy. They thought that he was not who he said that he was, but he even proves his divinity in the power that he had to walk past these people without them laying a hand on him. See, he's not sneaky, he's sovereign. And they didn't pick up stones because he didn't finish his sentence. You know what I'm saying? I am, dot, 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 dot. They didn't pick up stones because he said, I am Iron Man, and then snapped. You guys have had three months to see Endgame. I'm going to spoil it for you. The reason they were angry, the reason that Jesus would go to the cross is because there is an unbelieving world that did not believe that he is who he says that he is. He says, I am. And because of that proclamation, we can be who he says that we are, which is forgiven if we trust ourselves to Jesus Christ. So church, I implore you, and I want to remind you, you came to us. Repent. Turn your life to Jesus. Realize you are broken. Realize that you don't just need a fix, you need a fixer, and his name is Jesus, the great I am. But before I ask the worship team to come up, I just want you to think about this. I want you to examine yourselves. Have you repented? Have you changed direction? Talk a lot about repentance because we think it's the, the catalyst. One who has faith repents. And so here's the question we always ask. Do you hate the sin you once loved and love the son you once didn't believe in? That's when you know you've repented, that you don't want it to be your way. You want it to be God's way because you hate the sin that you once loved, that you once identified yourself by, but now you love the son who you didn't believe in because you realize you can get your identity from him and him alone. And once you make that confession that not only have you sinned, but you are a sinner and you are in need of a savior, you start to see the world differently. So do you see yourself indebted to Christ, not as a slave, but as a son or a daughter of the God most high because he did for you what you could not do for yourself? If you do, there's a good chance that God has drawn you to himself and he's given you the eyes to see the spiritual realm and your spiritual need for Jesus. Worship team, you can come on up.